Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Moneymaker, the podcast that gives you the tools to enrich your life in every sense of the word. I'm your host, Nelly Galan. Let's get started. Daniela Pearson, excited to meet you. You're so inspirational. You're 28 years old and you have built single-handedly a company that is worth $200 million. It's unbelievable. And I know you're so honest and so forthright about how you did it and really teaching other women how to do it. So thank you so much for being a moneymaker. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited and what an honor to be on your podcast. I love how you tell your story about being so young and that you really were having a lot of issues in school and that you were trying to figure out your life. Can you tell us how all of this even started? Yeah, for sure. I was born and raised in Florida. I'm an identical twin, so I'm a gemela. My mother is an immigrant from Colombia. My father is from Niagara Falls, New York. Both of my parents worked very hard. Their entire lives came from poverty. My mother became an oral surgeon at just 22 years old in Colombia. My father, you know, started by washing cars, selling cars, and then had his own car dealership. And so I come from parents who are such hard workers themselves. So I always knew that I wanted that as well. So while I was in school, I really didn't pay attention that much in classes where I was learning about, you know, triangles or volcanoes because I knew that that was not what I wanted to do. I knew that my passion, I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was something that would be able to make a change in the world and be something where I could throw all of my energy and passion to. And so I think people probably thought that I was a pretty lazy kid. I also didn't know this by an ADHD and OCD since I was young and it wasn't diagnosed until many years later. And so I wasn't, you know, anybody who somebody would think that would be, you know, nominated as like most likely to succeed. That was never me. And so my twin sister, actually, Alex, she goes by Alex Astor. That's her pen name. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She was like the valedictorian, got the highest grades. And so I didn't know this, but they referred to me as the dumb twin. And um, I only knew about this nickname because although I hated school and I you know, didn't really try that hard, our parents really treated us equally because they knew how hard it was for me to pay attention and understand rather than my sister who loved school. And so basically we would get the same allowance if my sister got straight A's and if I got B's and C's, which is probably not that fair, but you know, it worked for us. It was nice that they didn't hold me to my sister's standard and knew that we were different, even though we're identical twins. 
But from there, I realized very quickly in high school that if I didn't start caring about school, I would be stuck in Jacksonville, Florida for the rest of my life. And that's not where I wanted to be. I wanted to explore. I wanted to live in a big city. And while my sister was getting all these letters from the best universities in the world, I was getting nothing. And so my sophomore year, I said, you know, I might not care about math and algebra and chemistry and all these things I know I'm never going to use. But this is going to be a means to an end. And that end is going to be me getting out of the city and making a name for myself. And so I almost treated it as, you know, instead of getting excited about the topics, I was excited about the end goal. And so after trying to play to my strengths, so I knew that I was somebody that was really good at paying attention to something right before an exam. And so what I would do is I would have an exam that day. Let's say the exam was at 4 p.m. From 8 a.m., the second I walked into school to 4 p.m., I was using every single second of class time, free time, lunch, whatever, just cramming everything in. And then I would get an A plus on the test. And so for my junior and senior year, every second I was in school, I wasn't hanging out with friends. I wasn't doing anything fun. I was in the library. I was just studying and doing all my homework, all my projects, everything. So that when I got home, I could just watch TV and relax and whatever. And that really worked for me. So I went from getting C's and a couple of B's to straight A pluses. And I think my parents and my teachers were like, what just happened? So you learned a learning style is what you're saying for you. Yeah, I had to kind of learn. And it's hard when you're, you know, in a small town. Actually, Jacksonville is a pretty big town land mass wise, but it's pretty small in terms of it's not New York or LA or Chicago. People aren't teaching you about how people learn differently. And you're either dumb and you get an F on a project or you're smart and you get an A on the project and everybody learns the same exact way. And I kind of realized that I wasn't in that bucket. I couldn't work in that style. And so I think that was probably the first time I ever took my fate and my destiny into my own hands and said, I refuse to just learn the way that they want me to learn. Even if it's frowned upon, no one would say, you know, just study like a crazy person for eight hours in a row and then take a break. That worked for me. And so that's what I did. And that's how I ended up at Boston University. I went to BU. The first few years were actually general studies. So instead of going right into business and marketing and all the things I was so excited to do, we had two years of science and social studies and English. And I kind of was just like, enough. I have the gift, the enormous gift that my parents gave me by working so hard their entire lives. That gift was that my sister and I were able to go to school with zero debt. They paid for our college. And that is the biggest gift that they could have ever given me that anyone could ever receive because almost everybody I knew had student loans to work, et cetera. And so I said, if I'm lucky enough that I'm here for four years, my parents, for me, at least Alex was like, I'm going to be valedictorian or summa cum laude. And she ended up doing that. She went to UPenn and she's, you know, a genius. But for me, they kind of said, you know, we want you to make friends. We want you to find who you are. It wasn't so much about like, you better get the best internship because they knew that I was capable, but they also kind of wanted me to figure out who I was. And so I basically thought to myself, okay, as long as I don't fail out, which proved to be a lot harder than I thought it would be later on, and I'll touch on that in a second, 
as long as I don't fail out, I have, it was three years at this point because I had already done freshman year. I have three years to basically use every second that I'm not in class to build whatever I want to be after college. And so in freshman year, you know, I made friends and I went to parties and stuff. And a lot of it wasn't for me. I didn't really fit in. I didn't know who I was, honestly. I had zero confidence. So it was just kind of a disaster. But after that in sophomore year, I said, if I have this gift where I have all of this free time, never in my life again, am I not going to have any responsibility except for just go to class, don't fail out, be a good person, then like I need to start a business. And I knew that I loved magazines and that my dream internship would be to work at a magazine, but that was never going to happen because at least, you know, 10 years ago, you had to know somebody who knew somebody. So I knew that wasn't going to happen. So I thought, why don't I start my own thing? And that's really how the news that was born. Did you know at all how to do it? How did you figure this out? No, I had zero idea what I was doing. I guess I was in such a bubble in Jacksonville, Florida, the way I consumed media, and this was like in 2013 when I graduated, I consumed media by reading magazines. And at that point, there were, I guess they called them more like blogs, but there were websites and stuff that people went on. I had no clue about that. The only website I knew about was Hulu. And I guess I was really a pioneer in that because I loved watching TV. But I just consumed my media through magazines. So then when I realized, oh my gosh, people have blogs and there's websites, I wanted to start a blog or a website, but it was so hard. I tried for hours to try to figure it out. And I said, okay, what's like an easier way to do this? And then I realized that there were email newsletters coming out. It was like the renaissance of email newsletters again after Daily Candy. And I thought, okay, maybe this will be easier. And it was. And so I spent 12 hours straight one day in my dorm room just figuring out how to make the layout of a newsletter and how to set it up and then how to build a very simple subscribe page and all that stuff. Nobody helped me. I didn't have any friends. My parents had no idea what I was doing. And I honestly don't think I even told them until like a year in because I didn't want them to think that I wasn't paying attention to school or anything. So it literally was like Googling things, reading books. I listened to every podcast about blogging. Really, the only thing that was comparable to what I was doing was what bloggers were doing at the time, except it was an, an email newsletter format. And it was a publication that had nothing to do with myself. It was almost its own entity. And so with that in mind, I would listen and I would read all these books about bloggers and how they built their businesses, how they work with advertisers, et cetera. So in the middle of all this, because this is the era of influencers, right? You decide, I'm going to do a business that really isn't about me. I mean, that was a very smart thing to do <laughs> because then it's, you know, it could be bigger. So you didn't really have a game plan. You just said, that's what I feel like doing. I feel like making like a new magazine. Yeah, I had zero game plan. I think I've always had this spirit where I felt like, Everyone else around me, especially right before I started the news app, but when I went to college, people had things that they were so passionate about. I remember one girl that lived in my hallway in my freshman year, she would wake up every day at 5.30 to go running. Another girl loved rowing. Another girl was passionate about fashion, like all of these things. And I almost, I envied them. I wanted something that I loved so much that I would be so excited to get my feet on the 
rug next to my bed and just get up and be so excited for the day instead of dreading it because I, I experienced a lot of depression throughout my entire life and I still do. And of course, with my OCD and ADHD, a lot of those things are amplified. And so when I finally found an object of my affection, I poured everything into it. There was zero, you know, oh, well, maybe this is going to be too hard. I just went 150% towards it and looked up whatever I didn't know. If I didn't know it, I would find the answer. If I couldn't find the answer, I would make up my own way. Failure was not an option. And I didn't even think about what it would look like in three years when I had to graduate. I just knew that it was something that I could put my energy in and it would grow and grow and grow. And I just did everything possible to feed and nurture it. Well, it's amazing because ADHD, you took like a problem and instead of making it a problem, you found the workaround. I went back to school and I got a doctorate in psychology. So I know a lot about ADHD. And when you love something, then you hyper-focus. And that's the key to it. It's finding something you love. Okay, so you start doing this newsletter. It sounds like you're doing the content based on things you like and you love and you hear other people are interested in. How are you building an audience? That's the hardest part. It definitely is the hardest part. For me, it was the most exciting part because we weren't, whenever I say we until I graduated college and I had like one intern and then two interns, whenever I say we, I mean me, myself, and I, I always say the team of three. So the new Zed and we, me, as a sophomore, I quickly realized that I, with ADHD, like you said, and I'm not going to speak for everybody with, you know, this mental illness, but it's so true. Like, I think the reason why I was able to sit and study for eight hours straight is because I had a goal. I was super focused, hyper focused on what I wanted to do after this. And so with the news at, when I started writing it, when I came up with the idea, I sent out my first newsletter the next day to like eight people. I'm pretty sure they were all my grandparents and parents and stuff. And then it slowly grew by like word of mouth, but it was still like 12 people, 15 people. But I would wake up every single day at 5.30 a.m. I was so excited. I would sit on my computer until 10 a.m. when I would press send. I wouldn't go to the bathroom. I wouldn't eat breakfast, nothing. I would just, it was almost like I was in a trance. And it truly was because of my ADHD. I, I loved it so much. And it was almost like someone had to like drag me away from doing it. And that's really how everything I'm passionate about works with me. But in terms of growing an audience, again, I was in all these classes that I didn't want to be taking as a sophomore in college, like, you know, history and science. I knew I was never going to have to be an expert in those things. Um, and so I was in the back. And when everybody was on Facebook, because, you know, I'm 28 now. So 10 years ago in college, everyone was on Facebook. I was in the back row and I was also on Facebook, but instead of chatting with friends, I was going through all of the people I went to high school with, going to their profiles. And then at the time, I don't know if this is still true, Facebook would chronologically list all of the new friends that each person had. And so I knew, okay, the last 200 friends that these people have on Facebook are people they met at college. And so I would message every single one of them and say, hey, I'm interning for this really cool company called The New Zet. Would you want to be an ambassador? If you have 10 friends subscribe and they subscribe and read, 
then you can become an official brand ambassador. You can put on your resume. At the time as a sophomore, there was nothing to put on your resume and you were begging to put anything on it to get an internship. And then if you refer another person to get an ambassador, then you become a super ambassador. And I basically did that 10,000 times. And I told people that I was an intern because I knew that if people thought I was the founder, that they'd be like, no way, this is lame. That was a smart move. <laughs> yeah, I guess I had such little confidence in myself, but it truly like, you know, I couldn't just be like, oh, it's me. It had to look like it was a real company. And so, you know, a year later, when huge multi-billion dollar media companies would reach out and be like, hey, like we want to do a partnership and stuff. It's because I really made it look like even when I was in college and it was just me, like it was an actual business. So the advertiser part of it, which listen, I'm somebody who used to run a TV network. So I know how even harder that is. Did you really learn about advertising at first or did you start with the people that reached out to you? Yeah. So the entire time, again, I was very lucky that I didn't have to make money from the newsletter for years because my only job was really to be a student. And so I didn't have any money to put in it. And so it was obviously incredibly hard to build something with nothing. And luckily, a lot of the email services and the marketing I was doing, it was all free. It was just a lot of hard work and sweat equity. And so when I realized, okay, in order to make this a job, I'm going to have to monetize. That's when I became obsessed with learning about how bloggers worked with brands because that was the most you know similar way that I would be able to approach brands or work with brands. And so I really studied all of that. And then my last year, senior year, when I had about 100,000 subscribers was when I would start getting hit up by people like Casper Mattress and Stitch Fix and all these new brands that were spending a ton on newsletters because they realized how good of a source it was for conversion. And I remember thinking, should I take this money now? And it was significant money. It still is at the time. It was like, oh my gosh, what? I'm going from making nothing to like so much money from this. I knew that if I was going to take on an advertiser partner, I had to do it once I graduated because the worst thing would be that they partnered with me and they emailed about something and I couldn't get back to them in three hours because I was in an exam or I was in a class. I would hate that because then I just ruined the relationship. And so what I did was I said, we have a wait list and we're launching advertising like May 2nd or whatever the day after my graduation was. And I pre-sold advertising and basically in the first month of my pre-sale, I sold $25,000 worth of advertising. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to New York. And so I moved to New York with that money. And why? Because you knew you had to be there to spend time with the advertisers? Yeah, I knew I couldn't stay in Boston because there were no really big media companies in Boston. And I knew they were all in New York. And I knew that every single person that was reaching out to me or that I was looking up for advertising or even people I wanted to hire on my team, they were all in New York. And I always had wanted to go to New York. And so I was like, I have to be in New York. And so I moved to New York with my twin sister and I 
had this startup that was just completely sustained by the money I make is the money I spend. And I probably a year after I hired one intern and then two interns. But every month it was literally like, we have to sell this much in order to stay in business and have this much in the bank and all that stuff. But I got swept up in the whole VC thing. But wait a minute, there's a time in this story where you take money from your parents. Where is that? Yeah. So when I'm graduating, my parents said my sister was trying to pursue something and she was summa cum laude. She impressed everybody. I almost got kicked out of college because I failed my entrepreneurship project. So my parents were not very happy with me. And especially before you know, I made any money from it, they were not going to participate in any way. And so they gave my sister a $15,000 loan. And it was actually from us selling our cars that we had growing up that we didn't need anymore because we were in big cities. But they said, we're never going to just give you money. We want to give you a loan so that when you pay it back, you feel like, you know, you don't owe anyone anything. And so they gave her that $15,000 loan. And then my parents have always been like, if one gets something, the other one gets something too. At that point, I don't think they really want to honor that because they were so mad at me for almost failing out. But my mom convinced my dad and was like, we have to do the same thing. And so then I also got the $15,000 loan. And so I used that the end of senior year to pay for all of the upgrades for the ESP. So my email service provider, because I had a bigger list, I used some of it for swag. So we had this big ambassador program where I sent t-shirts and swag and stickers. And then I also used it to open the first bank account just to have some money in there. And so then when I made the $25,000, that was on top of that. And I was kind of ready to go, but I was able to pay back the loan within like two months. Wow. That's incredible. The whole story. So you were saying that you then later on started thinking, maybe I need VC money, by the way, which I agree with you. For most people, that's a mistake. I have a lot of opinions about this now. And I've written, you know, millions of dollars of checks to people as a, you know, investor. And I've had companies that have taken VC capital, but Newsette was not one of them. So about a year in to being in the Newsette and having, you know, like two interns, we were doing like $200,000 a year. I was paying for the necessities. I wasn't like giving myself any sort of salary that would allow me to like go to a fancy restaurant or anything like that. It was, it almost felt like I was stealing from the company if I took anything (laughs) more than just like the bare essentials. And so I would pitch as myself or as somebody else with the news at email so that it looked like I had a bigger team. I definitely did that so many times, but I would pitch all of these reporters at Forbes, Business Insider, you know, et cetera, and be like, hey, this is so-and-so from the news ad. I think you should really profile Daniela Pearson, like look at all the things she's doing. Like she's the news at like three years old after college is going to make this much money, whatever. And every single person would email back, every reporter would email back and say, cool, how much money have you raised? Every single one. And I don't blame them because that was literally what everyone was talking about. I mean, if you read the news at anyone who doesn't know what the news head is, which is our main product. It's basically a daily digest meant to inspire, delight, and inform women, but anyone, essentially, every single weekday and now on the weekends as well, so every single day. And we cover news from women's rights to pop culture to 
tech stuff to cool founders. And then we do like profiles on incredible women. We highlight small businesses. We work with, you know, the Nikes and Amazons of the world to do really cool content. So it's just basically like a mini magazine delivered in your inbox every single day. And then we also have New Land, which is our agency, which was a secret for a long time. I love the idea of New Land. It was a secret for a long time. And actually, Diane von Furstenberg, who is my mentor, who reached out to me, cold outreach, because she read the news ad and she changed my life forever. She basically was the catalyst of me creating New Land and then the team running with it. It's basically an agency that does performance PR and also huge activations on TikTok, Instagram, et cetera. We did one of the biggest TikTok campaigns in history. It got 12 billion views. But basically, when I was growing this back then, probably like a year before Diane reached out to me, I was like, okay, well, I need to raise money because even though I was slowly going, no one cared about that I was profitable. The only profitable media company in New York at the time, even though it was you know such small numbers compared to those, people only cared about how much I raised. And so I spent like three good months going to every VC, getting laughed out of rooms, even going to a VC, having people who were huge fans of the Newsette tell their big boss whose name was on the building to come meet with me. And basically halfway into my pitch, he starts laughing and said, you know, you remind me of my granddaughter. And I was like, oh, she must be a brilliant entrepreneur. And he got really solemn and said, no, actually, she talks too fast and she has no idea what she's doing. And looked at me until I got my stuff and left the room. And it was the most traumatic thing. There was a lot of trauma that went on growing up, but also getting the dean's letter that I was going to be kicked out of BU because I failed an entrepreneurship project and those entrepreneurship professors telling me that I should just go pursue my little newsletter, you know, all that stuff. But that day I was in the Uber and I was crying and the Uber driver looked at me and he said, you get to choose whoever talks to you like that. And you never have to talk to that person again, because he heard me like basically telling my boyfriend or like my mom about what happened. And I, I don't know where that Uber driver is, but Truly, I literally was like, you know what? Yeah, he's right. And just like when I took my destiny in my own hands, I guess, and not because I'm brave, not because I'm special, just because I'm a survivor. I literally was like, you know what? I could spend another three months pitching dozens of VCs, all male, all old, all snickering at me because I'm a 23-year-old Latina woman, you know, wearing a cute outfit and trying to be funny and just, I don't know, not exactly the kind of entrepreneur they're used to seeing. I could do that for the next three months and try to get five people to give me a million dollars. So like, you know, a million divided by five, that was what I was raising. Or I could work my ass off and get that million dollars from 200 different advertisers. And that's what I did. It almost felt like I was back in college again, begging my professors to not fail me for my entrepreneurship project because it was peer graded and it was unfair. It's the whole story, but basically where you feel like you are so powerless. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take control of this because they don't get to tell me that I should just go get a normal job. I'm going to do it my way. And a few months later, again, I had like members on my team. I get an email 
we have like an email for advertisers. Now I don't even see it because we have an incredible advertising team led by a woman named Jackie and marketing is led by Jenna. And right now we have a president named Caroline and we just have so many incredible, incredible people, mostly women, but everybody on the team is just so great. I have Nora who's literally like right next to me and she's literally next to my right hand and she is my right hand. And she's just, you know, all these people that I could have never done any of this without. But at that moment, six years ago, I was alone. And so I didn't have the luxury of bouncing ideas off of people. I didn't have the luxury of calling my parents and having them give me a pep talk because they were basically like, you should probably go get a job. Like they were really worried about me. And so I get an email. I remember it was in December. So it was probably, I don't know, six years ago to the week. And it says RFP. And I had never gotten an RFP before, but it's a request for proposal. And usually it's only from a big company or an agency. And they said, we have a request for proposal for Ulta Beauty's 21 Days of Beauty. And we've selected you as, you know, one of the people we want to RFP, the newsette, having no idea it was me and two other people who were working out of my apartment. And they send the thing. Truthfully, the agency, they were so nice. The women that were on that team, I don't know if they're still at Mullenlo, but they were so kind. They were like, truthfully, we love the newsette and we really advocated for you to be a part of this. So like, we're really excited to give you this RFP. I click on the RFP and it says $100,000. Oh my God, I freak out. A two week campaign. And I was like, oh my God. And I knew in that moment, first of all, there's no way I'm getting this, but like, this is a sign I have to keep going because if these important people love the news ad so much. And I was still writing it. I wrote it for the first five years from 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. every single morning. Then I would work from 10 a.m. to, you know, 7 or 8 p.m. Uh, and then probably go to an industry thing that I would try to network or whatever. Like that's been my life for the last nine years. But I was like, if these people believe in me, I have to keep going. And I did every piece of the proposal. I had no idea what a media plan was. I had no idea what any of these things were. But again, I looked it up. I found people who knew what they were. And I asked them. I created a deck on Canva, which I used Canva from the first day I started the newsette. So truly like shout out to Canva. I used Canva to create the proposal. And a month later, we won it. Oh my God, I could cry. And at that point, one other team member actually had left. I don't blame them. You know, like they had a better opportunity somewhere else, but it was me and one other person and I got it. And I was like, oh my God, I've just paid for all of the expenses for this year, next year, and we can hire people and we're going to be able to have them in the newsletter, which is going to then show the other Fortune 500 brands that they should also, like, it was just, oh my God. And I remember like a week or two later going into that call, I was like, 10 people from the agency side and it was two people from my side and I did not tell them I was a CEO nothing and I went through that presentation as if I was a pro I fake it till you make it and that was the thing that changed my life that almost makes you cry because I know what that feels like when you have that moment where you know you've been verified to yourself hold on moneymaker will be right back At Evernorth Health Services, 
We believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's get back to the show. So let me ask you something. From there to now building a company, hiring people, because I know I also scaled a business from zero and I remember hiring people. And to me, that was the hardest part because I didn't know about HR. I didn't know about hiring people, about the laws of the state of how to hire, who's good and who's bad. Because a lot of people might have great resumes, but they haven't grinded like you've grinded. A lot of people come to work for you. I don't know. This is my experience. And they don't work as hard as you do because they're used to being in a corporate environment. So how did you transition from this rogue entrepreneur out of your house to actually now having a business? Yeah. So every single podcast I ever listen, again, podcast, I listen to every single one about every founder I admired, every person in the advertising industry, every person in the fashion industry, I consumed everything. Literally, if I was in the shower, if I was walking to a meeting, every second I was trying to educate myself on an industry I knew nothing about. And I literally just learned through doing. And so through the podcast, I remember every founder, founders like Emily Weiss and, you know, Sophia Moroso and whatever, and people that would like Sophia reach out to me, you know, a couple years after that. And it was like, wow, because her book was so inspiring to me when I first started my business. But every single person that ran these huge companies would say the hardest part about my job is hiring. And I used to be like, Psh, if I could hire a bunch of people, that would be amazing. Like that sounds like the dream until I had to do that. And now I say 100%, the hardest part of scaling business is getting the right people on the team. I genuinely think that in order to have a successful startup, you have to have people who felt like I did when I was in college, where they had so much passion, so much energy that they wanted to put towards something they cared about. And they were just looking for that one thing. Those are the kind of people that we hire today. In the beginning, when I had the $100,000 from Ulta, and then I started getting you know, other deals, and I had so much money in the News App Bank account. Again, I never imagined, I never, ever, ever, until I was 25, and the business made millions and millions of dollars of profit, I never, ever took a significant amount of money from that business. Because even when the bank account said so much money, I never thought about it as my money it almost felt like a crime to think about as my money. So until I was 25 and I was paid a multi-million dollar dividend and I was able to give my mom, who I 
gave 15% of my company to because she was honestly the only person or one of the only people who really believed in me every step of the way. Again, she's a immigrant from Colombia and just gave up her entire life so that me and my sister could have the life that we wanted and follow our dreams. But hiring is so hard. So in the initial days where I had this money to spend and I knew that I needed to spend money in order to make money and every single person I hired needed to fill a gap that I you know, didn't have that would take me to the next level, I would literally go to media companies and look on LinkedIn and see who the people on their rosters were, like what job titles did they have, all this stuff. And I made a ton of mistakes. At 22, I had people on my team that were a decade older than me, you know, that some people who tried to walk all over me and I let them and tried to treat me like that I was working for them. And it was really hard to find my voice. I had to fire people. I had people who lied and cheated and stole from me. It was just really like something that no 23-year-old should have to deal with. And it was just such a learning lesson and to not take things so personally. So I made a ton of mistakes hiring. So I take full accountability, even for the people who didn't work out, even for the people who did bad things. Like, you know, it was my fault. I hired them. However, all you can do is just learn from that. And so there was a point when we got that Ulta RFP that I literally shrunk my team down to one other person. And it was a blessing in disguise because then I was able to hire people like Grace, who was at the company for years and years and recently left to go do her own thing. And she's brilliant, but she was our first salesperson. And then all of a sudden she was the director of sales. And all of a sudden she was leading new land and making, you know, the kind of money that Wall Street bankers in their 50s make. So it's just been such an incredible journey to be able to find people who truly care because there are those people out there and want to do a great job and learn how to incentivize them where they feel like if the company's winning, they're winning too, because that is so important. And then there'll always be people that you believe in and who you thought were the right fit and they just aren't. And even though I'm a hypocrite for saying this, because I've definitely not done this in the past, it's best to just hire slowly and fire quickly. That's a great lesson that you've learned. And it's so funny because when I wrote my book, Self-Made, I, I say in the book to women, there is no Prince Charming. And I mean that also like there's nobody in business that's going to come and save you and no company is going to come and save you. And we know that from the schooling system and we know that everything's kind of not what you think it's going to be. And in the end, you realize if you do it yourself, you're all you can count on. And then later on, the transition from that is very difficult. Now, one thing that I love about your story is I love that you're telling people all this because it normalizes it for people that think I'm never going to make it. I'm not smart enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. But you talk a lot about mental health. And I know you partnered with Selena Gomez and you guys have really done a lot around that. Why was that so important to you? Yeah. So mental health, as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, is extremely important to me, especially as a Latina woman. I'm half Latina. My mother is an immigrant from Colombia. I grew up speaking Spanish as my first language. I am not as comfortable speaking it anymore. I would definitely call myself a gringa. I understand absolutely everything, but when I speak it, I get very nervous. And so something I actually want to do this year is take more like Spanish classes or go to you know 
Yo voy a hablar contigo en el futuro. Sí, sí, por favor. But people see me and they never think I'm Hispanic. So actually, like I went on a plane once and I was in my seat with my poodle, Leo, who is like the most, like he's like this big and he's like the most docile, beautiful thing ever. And this woman next to me was Hispanic. And I guess the flight attendant was also Hispanic. And she basically started saying in Spanish, like, yo no quiero estar con ese perro, like, start, like, you know, <laughs> saying all this stuff and like saying that my dog. She doesn't realize you speak Spanish. And she is allergic to dogs. And I turned and I was like, no se preocupa. He's hypoallergenic. And like, I told her all and whatever. And she was like, I am sorry. And, and so it's funny. I wish I had more of my mom's genes, especially because she is just gorgeous in every single way. Colombianas are very gorgeous, I have to say. She's beautiful inside and out. People literally think that she's my sister. And I used to be very tan when I lived in Florida. Now I live in New York and Boston for the last 10 years. So I really don't get a lot of sun. Uh, but I'm so proud of that heritage. With mental health, there is a stigma and I don't want to say this universally, but in at least the Latin culture I grew up, you know, my mom, when I would, no one really knew what I had, but when I was little, it started off that my canopy bed broke and my uncle Carlitos taped the canopy with this like black tape and I couldn't sleep all night because it was not symmetrical. And I like cried about it. My parents were like, don't pay attention to it. Then it was, I had to tap the garage door four times or if somebody opened one of the doors in the kitchen, all this stuff. And my family almost like laughed at it, like almost like it was a quirk. They would never have thought it was a mental illness. And whenever I got older and I actually learned that it was OCD through a health class in high school, then they described exactly what I had. And I was like, oh my God, I have OCD. I went home and I told my dad and my dad is, you know, American, half Italian, but like one of those like men's men, He's American, but he grew up in Niagara Falls. He's the kind of person that like he would never go to the hospital unless he was literally like dying. And so it's like, you don't have that. Like, we don't have that. Just don't think about it. And so it's like, okay. And I went to my mom and my mom was like, oh no, you don't have that. Just tell yourself, I don't need to do it. I don't need to close the door. I don't. And they genuinely thought they were giving me good advice, but they just had no idea. Yeah, it's lack of information. They don't know. Yeah, so it was a cultural thing, but also, you know, cultural in the sense of being Latina, but then also it was just a timing thing and, and culture in general in America of people not being outspoken. And so the reason why when I became successful and everyone says, oh, you're so brave to talk about your mental health. And I said this on a Forbes panel last year. I said, I actually don't think I'm brave. I think I'm kind of a coward because I only started being super open about my OCD, ADHD, depression when Forbes announced that I was worth $220 million, when the world saw that, you know, I had quote unquote made it. If I was really brave, I would have been saying it since I, you know, had $100 in my bank account and, you know, didn't know how to do payroll. And so, yeah, I think it's really important that people talk about it and people like me and people like you and people who have platforms and people who are successful to normalize it so that then the next generation isn't afraid to say those things like I was and doesn't think that they will be penalized. Because if I was 
let's say in a position in my career where I had to raise money or something, you know, I would feel scared that people would say, oh, she's unstable. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Like, what if she has to go to like a mental health institute? And it just, there's so much misinformation. There's so much stigma that now I feel very comfortable and proud to talk about it. But it's honestly only in hopes that other people will talk about it as well so that nobody ever has to feel like they're alone. Well, I just have to say, I think I could be your mom too. I'm like a mom and I speak for your mom and me that, you know, I also started a business but in another generation where we didn't have information like you guys. And it was very hard and it was hard for Latinas in this country. I'm sure your mom has gone through a lot of that too. It's incredible that you've used all the technology and all the great things that are out there and that you have believed in yourself, even though it's hard. And we all have doubts that you did it. And I'm just so utterly proud of you. And I hope every Latina and every minority woman, every woman out there hears that when the world is telling us we can't do stuff, we should not listen to that. And we live in an incredible moment in history. Look, you have really gotten a PhD on your own and that it's possible and that it's great. So I honor you. I'm so proud of you. And I can't wait to keep in touch with you. Wow. Well, thank you so much for all of that. That is so kind. And especially coming from somebody like you, I just feel so honored to have that praise. And I just really appreciate you having me on. I know. Eres muy especial. Is your mom still in Jacksonville? Your mom and dad? Yeah. So they still live in Jacksonville. They also have a house in Asheville where they're not retired yet, but they spend a lot of time there. But my mom tries to come visit me at least once a month in New York. Well, I'm in I grew up in like New Jersey, New York. Then I moved to California. Now I'm living in Miami because my mom is at the end of her life and I'm here to help her. Oh, no. You know how Latinas are. You know how Latinas are. Yes. No, I do. She's lucky to have you. Daniela, so happy to meet you. I hope we will stay in touch. And I'm at your service. Anytime you have any announcement, anything, let me know. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you. That's so kind of you. And ditto. No, thank you. Moneymaker is a production of Money News Network. Moneymaker is written and hosted by me, Nelly Galan. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Thanks for listening. See you next time.